Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Ask Us Anything, the show where popular science proves time and time again that there's no such thing as a stupid question. I'm Philip Kiefer, a staff writer on PopSize Science Desk, and I'll be your host for today. And I'm producer Jess Bodie. Philip, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Jess. I'm glad of I didn't course. Uh, talk your ear off too much about foxes. Oh, you're uh, great. I'll, I'll listen to foxes all day long. <laughs> okay, so we're, we got a new addition to the menagerie. Um, today's <laughs> question starts with a bumper sticker you've probably seen at a farmer's market and it says save the bees yeah yeah the bees everybody loves the bees yeah everyone loves the bees and are they still in trouble do they still need saving oh. so i can give you the the short answer now which was pretty unequivocal whenever i talked to bee scientists bee researchers they said yes oh no bees are totally in trouble i know it's you need the bumper sticker still yeah <laughs> But it's not in the way you think, and it's not happening to the bees you might think about necessarily. Huh. This is going to be one with a lot of twists and turns, and we're going to get into it after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. And, you know, I'm on the edge of my seat, Philip. I got to know. Give us the 411 on be well-being. Okay, so I'm going to answer this question, are the bees still dying, by telling a three-part story. So it's going to start with why apiarists, bee scientists, people who keep bees, started to worry about bees in the first place. Mm. Then it's going to be how the general public heard about this and got interested and like why it got in front of you and onto bumper stickers. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're going to end on how the bees are actually doing and how you can help. So are are you ready for (laughs) this, this journey? I'm ready for this wonderfully structured narrative. Let's, (laughs) let's do it. So the story (laughs) opens in, 2006 in Pennsylvania, when honeybee farmers there started to notice that over the winter, their hives were emptying out. So they'd have healthy hives, tons of bees buzzing around. And then a few weeks later, they'd check on them and there wouldn't be any bees at all. And I'm guessing that's not like a normal thing that a beekeeper sees every day. Yeah, it turns out honeybee hives do die in the winter sometimes. You know, it's winter in Pennsylvania. It's cold. Sure, sure. They can starve. Um, 
if there are parasitic mites that have gotten in there, that might be extra mm-hmm. stressful. So you see hives dying, but what was weird about these hives is it was, you know, it was sort of horror movie like. There wasn't there weren't any of the signs of a normal tough winter. It wasn't like they would look and see the bodies of starved bees in the hive. That might actually be the more horror movie image. Sure, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) um, But, you know, they wouldn't find all of these starved bees around and they couldn't see evidence of these mite infestations. Um, It was just empty. And they noticed something else really weird, which was that, you know, an abandoned hive is still full of honey and all sorts of other good things. And so... Normally, moths and other scavengers would come around and, you know, soak up all that good, good sugar. Um, Yeah. But when you have these abandoned hives, the scavengers would just leave them alone. So it's just silent and empty. Yeah, it's really, really creepy. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's so creepy even to people who keep bees that it started getting a lot of attention. And scientists ended up giving this missing bee phenomenon a name. They called it colony collapse disorder. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. And the really weird thing is there's all this attention, but even now, 16 years later, we don't know exactly what caused it. Um, Dennis Van Engelsdorp, who's a bee scientist at the University of Maryland with just, you know, a beautiful name, um, Mm -hmm. did a bunch of the early investigations of these empty hives. And what he says now, what he told me, um, earlier this year is that his best understanding is colony collapse disorder is caused by a virus, but it's probably one that's sort of overlapping with other kinds of stress, like maybe these mites or something. Mm. Um, and he says there's kind of, you can kind of see a similar dynamic with other insects like termites. Um, oh. you know, they'll get a disease and, individuals will walk out of the colony. They want to go quarantine and not get their nestmates sick. And you that's know, maybe so that's so considerate. <laughs> I know, and but really bleak, right? Yeah, <laughs> they sort it's of go very wander bleak. off into the wilderness. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so maybe that's what's happening here. Um or what was happening here. You know, I talked to Natalie Steinauer, who's a scientist with um this group called the Bee Informed Partnership, or BIP, that does um, honeybee advocacy and research work. They monitor hive losses every year. And what she told me is that when you look back at the pattern of colony collapse, how it spread from Pennsylvania to other states, it did look a lot like an epidemic, just one where we've never really figured out what virus it was. Right. Right. So what does that mean for the bees then? That's where it gets really weird again. It's just going to keep being <laughs> weird. Um, you know, for a couple of years, this was really devastating. There were beekeepers who would lose half of all of their hives. Wow. And then it ended. Um, you know, Van Engelsdorp told me there's probably been a little bit of colony collapse disorder since 2008 or so, but the last really obviously documented cases of it happened in 2008 or 2009. That's, There's just not been any more. That's because it's strange because I feel like we hear about colony collapse disorder all the time. And right, we do. That's 
exactly right. We totally hear about it because the term colony collapse disorder and the underlying creepy, you know, right. bees wander off into the wilderness <laughs> was so scary and so catchy, right? Sure. So attention grabbing that the name kind of stuck around, even if bee scientists say, hey, this isn't something we see that much. And, yeah. you know, there's there's pretty good reason for that. Um, Steinauer told me that the Bee Informed Partnership really only started monitoring the health of honeybees every year looking for colony losses because of colony collapse disorder. They started seeing this scary thing and that prompted them to study it for the last 16 years. Um, but at the same time, Jeff Williams, who's the president of the Bee Informed Partnership, told me that basically once the media got a hold of the term colony collapse disorder, they would use it to describe any situation where a bunch of bees all died off at the same time. Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, and like, is that still happening now? Like, does it still happen? Yeah, it does. Um and that's why it's still kind of in headlines. It's just not yeah. because of colony collapse disorder, the the weird thing. Um, the Bee Informed Partnership sees something like 30% winter losses, you know, all hives every year goes up and down a little bit. They don't see a big trend line. It sort of hovers around 30%. Um, and you know, the researchers that I talked to for this told me that there isn't a whole lot of historical data before colony collapse on the number of beehives that would die every year. But based on anecdotes they have from talking to sort of old timey beekeepers, they think something like 10% losses used to be more common. Um, so it looks like colony losses have sort of tripled sometime in living memory, but the, the data is a little bit hazy. But what mm -hmm. they also tell me is that since they started tracking these losses, they'll, they've started to see beekeepers losing hives over the summer, not just in the winter. And they're pretty right. sure that didn't used to happen at all. Um, and so that's a signal that something pretty scary is going on or something pretty serious is going on. And the reasons for it are really complicated. Part of it has to do with these invasive mites. Um, the key ones are called Varroa mites, and they showed up in the US in the 1980s. Mm. But there are also changes happening on US farmland, the places where bees live. Um, there are pesticides called neonicotinoids that have proliferated over the last couple decades. Um, and monocrop soy farms have expanded in the northern plains, places like North Dakota, where bees will often spend the summer. And there's just so much evidence showing that these pesticides, the herbicides that go on to these big, you know, single crop farms, everything about it, the loss of diversity of plants are just really, really bad for honeybees. Like the whole landscape is starting to be hostile. Right. So it seems like the honeybees are in trouble, but maybe just not because of colony collapse. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the fair picture that 
people right. wanted to to share with me. Like they saw colony collapse as this wake up call, but mm. actually there are all these other sources of trouble brewing. And colony collapse might be related to those again, stress and what have you. But there's this storm cloud that's I mean yeah. <laughs> that's over us. It's not even on the horizon. It's happening. Um, right. But then there's another twist. Oh, the story twist. keeps getting uh, better and better. <laughs> So they, we're seeing these really high hive losses, like one in three is sort of the, right. the number that I was told. But the total number of honeybee hives in the U.S. hasn't dropped. We have the same total number. And globally, there are more honeybees than there were 10 years ago. What? <laughs> That's that doesn't make sense to my brain. How does how does that work? Right. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Mathematically, that does not compute. So what I was told is to understand this, what you have to get is that a honeybee, the you know, the bee that lives in hives, is basically livestock, right? It's like a sure. cow. They're called <laughs> European honeybees. They were brought over from Europe to mm. help pollinate crops. Um, and beekeepers raise them for honey. And, you know, some farmers, especially smaller organic farms, might keep bees around to pollinate their own crops. But one of the really big uses of honeybees in the U.S. Um, are these huge operations where they own tons of hives. And they send them all over the country to pollinate orchards and strawberry fields and you know farms across Florida and California. They stick them on the back of semi-trucks. Um, wow. And so a beekeeper has a bunch of, beekeepers like this have a bunch of hives to start out with. And if they lose a hive, they can actually grow it back. Um, Steinauer, who's the, the science lead with the Bee Informed Partnership, says you, you actually have to think of a honeybee colony not as a bunch of bees who are reproducing, but as a super organism. The colony itself is the, the oh. organism. And the super organism reproduces by splitting like a human cell or something. Um, oh. And so you know, with a little bit of care, a farmer can take an existing hive and split it into two. It can have it reproduce. Um, oh, so you wow. Can yeah, so you can have really high losses over the winter, but regenerate enough to have the same number of hives the following spring. Does that make right. sense? It does. It does. I think, that, yes, that does make sense. That's a so good way you, to deal with it, I guess. So you can lose it, but then you can grow it back and you can do it a lot faster than cows because you're not you sure. know, having to wait for cows to grow up or something. And yeah. You know, I don't want to downplay the problem. It's not like everything's hunky-dory because you can grow your bees back. Honeybees right. are, like I said, super important for food production as it exists right now. Farmers in the U.S. spend hundreds of millions of dollars to bring in these domestic honeybees to pollinate their crops. Um, and losing hives is really expensive for a beekeeper. You know, you can imagine a bad year, one of these people who loses half of their hives shutting someone's business down like any other small farmer who experiences right. high losses. Um, so you have 
a real threat to beekeepers' livelihoods and this longer-term possibility that, you know, maybe you have a year where winter losses are so high that beekeepers just can't regenerate their hives fast enough for the growing season when they need to be down in Florida. But that is an agricultural problem, right? It affects food, it affects farms. But I think oftentimes the threat to honeybees gets cast as an ecological problem, right? That somehow we're going to live in a world without pollinators, like Silent Spring, no pollinators. Is that something you've bumped into? Yes, 100%. And it like always feels um, a little hyperbolic, but also like it seems like the the premise of a sci-fi dystopian novel or something. Um, So I, I wonder if that's rooted in reality or not. And it is. It's totally true. Oh, my God. <laughs> there, there is this huge existential threat to pollinators. It just doesn't have anything to do with honeybees. Oh, my God. Okay, continue. <laughs> so, okay, I'm, I'm overstating things a little bit, right? It sort of has to do with honeybees. But okay. <laughs> honeybees are just one kind of pollinator, right? Mm-hmm. You've got wasps. You've got butterflies, you've got flies, you've got all these other insects. If you go out and look at a patch of flowers, you'll see all kinds of weird things going in there. Mm. And honeybees are just one kind of bee, right? You've also got bumblebees and these things called solitary ground-dwelling bees. They're mason bees and things like that. And those are totally in trouble. Oh, Um, I love the big fat... Fuzzy bumblebees. I have such bad bumblebee news. I'm sorry. Whoa, <laughs> no! It's the worst. I, I love bumblebees too. Like, I I don't know. The more I've gone into this, the more I'm like, okay, honeybees are cool and right. certainly love them. They're fuzzy. They're friendly. But like, mm, bumblebees. Anyway, um, when I when I talk to all of these bee scientists, they say, look, honeybees are a warning signal about all of these other kinds of bee. Like, if honeybees are being poisoned by pesticides, then wild bees are too. Um, It's just that, you know, we're not feeding wild bees and splitting them and nursing them back to health, and we're not really tracking wild populations as closely as we are the ones that we have on our farms. Right, right. So then I guess, like, do we even know how much trouble they're in? Kind of. I talked to someone named Jess Tyler, who does policy work on bee conservation at the Center for Biological Diversity. And Jess told me that basically we know about tons of native species that used to be common. And here's the bad news. Lots of them are bumblebees. So no. there was something called the rusty-patched bumblebee that used to be abundant across the east coast of North America and now only shows up in tiny little patches of its former range. And they're Oh no, rusty. I know. Well, and there are a <laughs> lot of other bumblebees like this and this is sure. why 
the Center for Biological Diversity is doing this work is they're interested in getting legal protections for these dwindling bumblebee populations. Well, good. Okay. But if that's representative of overall wild bee health, then Tyler told me you could have hundreds of native species that could be in the same kind of danger. Mm. And that has really different implications. Losing honeybees is a problem for human agriculture, but losing these other species is that kind of sci-fi apocalypse ecological threat, right? The Rachel Carson Silent Spring level threat. They're the ones that are pollinating native plants, not just fruits and vegetables, but all of the wildflowers that are growing out there. Um, trees, what have you. And if you lose them, then you start looking at these kind of cascading biodiversity losses. Right, right. So like at the end of the day, the bees the bees do still need saving. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's just that the slogan has kind of mixed up which bees we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, which seems like splitting hairs, but really makes a difference so i guess like to play devil's advocate isn't having folks all fired up to save the bees just isn't that just what matters in the end not it's not quite enough okay Um, and the reason for that is that there's this whole phenomenon called bee washing that i've come across (laughs) and basically the idea is that some of the steps that people take to protect honeybees are really bad for native bees. Um, Honeybees can actually outcompete native bees for food and they can spread diseases from, you know, agricultural settings to the wild. Tyler at the Center for Biological Diversity told me that honeybees are really messy eaters and they just kind of poop all over the flowers they go to and so you have transmission oh, from species to species my god they're they're rude little bees <laughs> and you know to be fair the wild bees might be doing this too i i, okay. I can't pin this just on honeybees but they nasty still apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's definitely something to consider if you're thinking about setting up a beehive to save the bees it's more like you are getting a herd of goats or something than putting up a bird feeder or setting up a natural area. Um, Yeah. And actually, as I was reporting this, I started hearing some buzz about... Oh, Philip. (laughs) (laughs) About a beekeeping paper from earlier this spring. And basically, it argued that the root causes of threats to honeybees can all be traced back to what the paper called industrial agriculture, kind of the the set of things that is monoculture crops, tons of pesticides and fertilizers, lots of off-farm chemical inputs. Right. And it argued that honeybees aren't just a victim of that, but they're actually kind of a driver of the process at the same time. Because if you're running one of these big industrial farms relying on all these outside inputs, you also need to bring in honeybees to replace wild pollinators. And those honeybees are inevitably going to get sick. Um, Wow. 
And I talked to the author, Maggie Shanahan, who's an entomologist um, studying at the University of Minnesota. And she told me that coming to that realization for her really touched her deeply emotionally because it made her wonder if all the work she'd been doing in her career to sort of figure out the little micro factors that make bees sick really matter against this bigger picture threat. Um, Right, right. And what she said she's come to in terms of solutions is you've got to think about bee health broadly in terms of landscapes, not just saving, you know, a hive of honeybees. And so I I can give you an example of what that looks like in practice. I was thinking about this and I was in Atlanta this spring with my partner's family. um, And we were walking through this restored meadow in a park near their house. You know, it's beautiful. It's got all this tall grass that waves in the wind and flowers. Um, And in the middle of it, I saw this beehive set up with all this signage about protecting honeybees. And suddenly I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh, that's that's silly. If you're trying to restore a meadow ecosystem in the southeastern U.S., you need bees that are part of that system, not the ones you build houses for. Sure, um, sure, sure. And I, I learned that you can actually trace a lot of this confusion back to colony collapse, back to where this whole thing started. Van Engelsdorp told me himself that when he first started doing bee outreach, he encouraged people to keep honeybees. But he told me that that wasn't because he saw it as a way of saving bees directly. He wanted people to start appreciating bees and developing sort of this hands-on understanding of the threats they face. Sure. And now he says... He kind of approaches that differently. He he says that he starts off by communicating that whatever we do to protect native bees will also help honeybees. Start with native bees and then work out from there. Start with the landscapes, go out. Right, right. So I guess like from a practical standpoint, like what can I do? What can individuals do to achieve that? Right. This is this is what I promised at the beginning. And yeah, <laughs> Van Engelsdorf has he totally has advice on this one. And in some ways, it's the simplest thing ever. It's just get rid of your lawn. Right. Huh. <laughs> Grass is the single largest irrigated crop in the United States. That's always the, the marquee statistic. We spend more water on grass, just wow. grass than any other single crop. That's wild to think about. Around. Yeah. Right. And and all of that space even just in the patch in front of your house is space that could otherwise be native forage for all sorts of insects. So he says, you know, plant a meadow, plant a garden if you don't want to have tall grass with native plants. Do anything like that instead. Have a backyard with all kinds of fruit and flowers and what have you. It sounds really nice. I mean, aside from the benefits of the bees, I don't yeah, know. No, it's really beautiful. And actually, if you're looking for a gardening book, well, I'll have more more on this in a second, but I just <laughs> picked up this book that my mom had given me called Planting Noah's Garden. That's um, oh. this sort of suburban couple who decide to, they have this like impeccably manicured sort of beautiful kind of stodgy garden and 
figure out how to turn it into something that is more like a meadowscape while also like scratching this gardening itch. And it's really, yeah. it's a beautifully written book, but if you're trying to figure out what that looks like, planting Noah's garden, huge fan of this book. Amazing. <laughs> I love that. But you know, if you do this, you might get flowers, you might get fruit and you'll get all of these other interesting things, right? You'll mm-hmm. have bees and birds and maybe salamanders depending on where you live like you'll I love have, salamanders oh my you'll gosh. have a garden that's not just the plants but like the whole world around those plants and that's what's actually going to help save all kinds of pollinators on your end right right and i am just remembering too that we have so much advice on how to let your lawn run wild on our website on popside.com um, yeah, yeah 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 i mean i think everyone well, I can't speak for everyone. I know our DIY team, at least, is <laughs> yeah. staunchly anti-mowing. I think a lot of the staff is. I am, too, as you can obviously hear. Definitely. Like when, when Van Engelsdorp was telling me this, I was just, you know, silently doing, like, a little fist pump on the other yeah. side of the phone, just snapping my fingers, like, yes, yeah. take that lawn out. <laughs> totally, totally. I would be, too. You know, eventually, I live in an apartment now, but when I get a house someday... I'm excited to do all of this fun, like wild plant native pollinator business. Um, seems like a lot of fun. So, so yeah, thanks for helping us actually save the bees, Philip. Thank you so much for having me. Got a question for the editors at Popular Science? Send an email to ask at popsci.com. Ask Us Anything is produced by the editors of Popular Science. This episode was written and reported by Philip Kiefer. Editing and audio engineering was by me, Jess Bodie. Big thanks to Billy Cadden for writing our theme song and to Katie Belloff for creating our logo. If you like our show, consider rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. It helps us out a lot. For more PopSci audio content, be sure to check out our sibling podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Thanks for listening.